We began a new series last week in the New Testament book of Acts, and uh, if you missed it, I do recommend, I recommend catching up every week, but you definitely want to catch up on the introductory sermon to get an idea of what that book of Acts is about. So you can find that on YouTube or podcast, but we, are, we began chapter one of Acts, and today we're going to start in verse six. So you can go ahead and turn there if you'd like. I think I can safely say that we as people have a fascination with last words, Uh, whether it's a softly spoken deathbed whisper, rosebud, or an inmate saying his final piece, tis a far, far better thing that I do now, or perhaps on the battlefield, let this be the hour that we draw swords together. We tend to pay special attention and grant special weight to last words. Uh, Perhaps it's because of that perspective granted, uh, that uh, focusing on the finality of the moment. This is this person's last words. We assume that these are really important things that can be uttered in someone's last moments. And in the Bible, there's a couple last words. I picked one out for you and then a few others. Samson's last words. Anybody know what that is? Let me die with the Philistines. Boom. And then he pulls the pillars down. Julius Caesar's last words, at least according to Shakespeare, etu brute. William Tyndale supposedly said as he was being burned at the stake, O Lord, open the king of England's eyes. That's a beautiful last thing to say. Although unproven, it's said that Leonardo da Vinci's last words were, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. What hope is there for me then? Marie Antoinette, on her way to the guillotine, did not say, let them eat cake, as we often think, but rather, pardon me, sir, I did not mean to do it, as she stepped on the executioner's foot. Anticlimactic, isn't it? So sometimes last words can be deeply profound. Sometimes, not so much. It really depends on the situation, on the person, but I think that we can at least admit that it is interesting to think about the last words that someone ever said. As we look at the book of Acts today, we will see the last earthly words of Jesus before he ascends into heaven. And I think that you will see that these words are full of promise, they're full of hope, but they're also a bit of a battle plan for the church to take the gospel to all nations. Jesus certainly had last words worth paying attention to, and so we will today. So pray with me one more time before we open the word. Lord, we ask your divine help and hand upon this moment. God, as we open your word and read these words, that God, you would make them come alive in a way that only you can. Help, God, help with your Holy Spirit's power to illuminate us. And God, give us just strong takeaways from this text for our church, for our life. In Jesus' name, amen. So look at Acts 1, 6. We pick up on what must be day 40 after Jesus' resurrection. He's with his disciples, and he takes them out to Mount Olive for a special trip. And so I'm going to read Acts 1, 6 through 11, all up front, and then we'll go back and work through each verse. Acts 1, 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, 
he was lifted up, and the cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. I have four areas of focus for us today. In his final words to his disciples, number one, Jesus gives a proper perspective. That's number one, a proper perspective. In verse six and seven, where we focus first, you see the disciples needing a bit of a mild correction, a mild correction, a redirection, really. They say to Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And I think we have to be fair and say, you know, that's not the craziest thing they could have asked in this moment. There's a lot of things they could have asked. This isn't that bad. Uh, and, and if you've seen the things that they had seen, went through the things they had gone through, you know, Jesus was teaching on the kingdom, wasn't he? He spoke on the kingdom a lot. And uh, as Jews, it probably meant to them, oh, when you say kingdom, you mean like the one we used to have. Jesus had been mentioning a outpouring of the Holy Spirit to come. In the prophet Joel, there was mentioned a, a mass event with the, the Holy Spirit being poured out as the day of the Lord comes. And so maybe they're just doing their best to bring Old and New Testament together. But by Jesus' response, we understand that this perspective of Israel's kingdom was not the focus. In fact, Jesus doesn't really accept or deny that that's the case. He doesn't shut down the idea that that's correct. But he also doesn't run with it. What does he do? He redirects and says, it's not for you to know the time or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, I interpret that to mean you're focusing on the wrong things. Don't even worry about that. The, the timing isn't up to you anyway, so why be anxious about it? Because it's not information that you need to be concerned with. I think it's good every once in a while to ask that question of ourselves. Are we focused on the right things? Do we have a proper perspective or do we need a redirection of our focus? It's so easy as an individual and as a church to get what is called mission drift. You ever heard of mission drift before? Raise your hand, anybody? Okay, let me tell you what that is. Mission drift is when you stray from the thing that you are primarily supposed to be doing. Mission drift is when you give more attention to secondary side issues than you give to the main thing for which you or your church or your organization was created to do. It's when you care more about things that have little to do with your primary mission than the mission itself. And it's when the tail wags the dog rather than the dog wagging the tail. Jesus had to redirect their focus away from Israel's kingdom. Why? Because he was changing their very paradigm from Israel is the kingdom and everyone should come in here to let's turn the world into the kingdom, everyone go and tell. In fact, you could say that the disciples were, by their question, shortchanging the plan. You could say, as we might say today, your vision was too small. You could say that they didn't see the big picture. They were worried about restoring Jerusalem to what it used to be. Imagine if Jesus said, you know, in a few decades, you'll have Jerusalem and Samaria and Antioch and Philippi. And in a couple centuries, you'll have Alexandria. You'll have Rome. 
And in a millennium, you'll have Europe. And five centuries later, you'll have the Americas. You don't even know what that is, but you'll find out. You'll have the Americas. See, they were thinking too small. Israel was just the starting point of where this would go. They were concerned with restoring Israel, and Jesus had a whole different upside-down plan for them. And I wonder if any of us need to reorient our mindset here at Kirby Woods. You know, maybe you've thought, Lord, now that we have a new pastor, will you now at this time restore the kingdom to Kirby Woods? And I can't help but wonder in light of Acts 1, 6 through 7, if that's even the right question to ask. The right question needs to be, Lord, what do you want to do with us? You see, the restoration, the restoration of Israel was the biggest thing that their minds could imagine. That's all they had. That was the biggest category they could imagine. Lord, will you bring back the glory days like when David was here? Will you give us the budget like when Solomon was here? But Jesus had so much more to do with the church than David or Solomon ever could comprehend. He needed to stretch them. It's clear the disciples were not to be preoccupied with the times or the seasons of Israel's restoration. So what were they to do? What did Jesus redirect them to? Acts 1.8 says it all. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Two points that are going to come out of verse 8. Our second point today, what Jesus focuses on, number two, a promise of power. There is a promise of power. Verse 8 begins, you will receive power. It's the Greek dunamis. It means power, might, strength, ability. The ability to exert force is power. So Jesus tells the disciples, you're going to get some power, ability, might, strength, things you didn't have before. Now you're going to get it. And what's the source of this power? Very clear. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, notice that if you really think about this, when you put the, maybe circle the word when, when you really think about this, this puts the Holy Spirit in the driver's seat of the book of Acts, not the apostles. The Holy Spirit is sitting above the apostles. It's sort of like the fact that most of us have cars, but we can be brought to our knees if gas becomes too expensive or if there's a gas shortage. Your car doesn't do a whole lot sitting in the driveway without gas, does it? The car often gets the credit for traveling down the road. But how far can you really go without your gasoline? I think that is a healthy way to think about the role of the Holy Spirit in a church. I think back to John chapter 3, when Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus about the Holy Spirit, what did he say? He said, Jesus said, the wind blows where it wills, describing the work of the Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit is not a light switch that we can turn on and off. Click, 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 click. Here he is. We can't just shout revival, and it happens. We can't just play the right songs and get the guaranteed feels. We can't just expect that because God did something one way one time in the past, that any time we do that thing again, ding, ding, ring the bell, he'll do it again. You see, we like the idea of a genie in a bottle because we understand it. We rub the bottle, pops out, obey my wishes, genie. I get three, right? Number one, I wish for more wishes. We love that idea. But that's not how it works with the Spirit of God. You see, he's actually in charge. And, and only on his timetable and in his will, and so long as we're yielded to him, will he grant us that power. Now, because the power of the Holy Spirit is granted, 
That doesn't just mean that this is all randomized and we, we don't really have a plan for how to receive power. In chapter 2, you will see the Holy Spirit descends on the apostles like fire. Can we create fire from nothing? I don't mean with a match. I mean from nothing. Nothing. Can we? Can you? No, you can't, can you? I can't. I can't just shout fire, make it happen. You might run out of the building if I did. But if God told you, hey, I'm going to start a fire. I'm going to give you a spark. I'm going to give you a flame. Prepare the campsite to receive that fire and keep it burning. Can you do that? Oh, you can do that now. What can you do? Well, if, if, if God said, I'm going to give you a flame, it's your job to keep that thing burning and lit. What would you do? Well, you might pick a dry location. Maybe you wouldn't go to the Amazon rainforest. Maybe you'd pick a dry place. You might collect big pieces of wood, split the wood, prep it, sit it in a pile. You might get some kindling. You might get some dry moss. There are things you can do. My point is there are things you can do to prepare for a fire to come. Even if you can't make fire, you can prepare to receive fire. There are things you can do to sustain and steward flame, even if you're not the one who lights the flame. So Kirby Woods, are we prepared to receive fire from the Lord? If the Spirit of God saw fit to send a spark our way, unlike anything that we've seen before, would we be ready and prepared to fan that flame into a powerful work of God? Are the conditions right in your heart? Should the Lord see fit to light a fire here at Kirby Woods? That's the power of the Holy Spirit that's available to us. Jesus said to the disciples, you will receive power when the Spirit has come upon you and, now here's where rubber meets the road, for what? Why? To shoot lightning from your fingertips? To fly? Why? That's number three. Jesus gives number three a tactic to testify. He gives us a tactic to testify. The second half of verse eight gives us the reason for the Holy Spirit being given in the first place. The whole reason we have power is this, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Here it is. Here's what you paid for today. Get ready. This is the secret sauce. The reason we are empowered by the Holy Spirit is so that we will bear witness to Jesus. That's it. Looking for something else? That's it. Jesus tells the disciples, here's the plan. You're going to get empowered. You're going to get juiced up. And then you're going to go be my witness. You're going to testify to me. The word witness is the Greek martus. Yes, that is eventually where our word martyr would come from because that's ultimately what it meant to be a witness for Jesus so often. However, the initial meaning of that word when Jesus spoke it is literally one who testifies. To bear witness is to be one who testifies. It is a legal word for taking the witness stand in a courtroom and being a witness, telling what you've seen. So to be filled and to be empowered by the Holy Spirit is to cause you to take the witness stand for Jesus in this life and tell the truth about him whenever, whether the courtroom is friendly or whether the courtroom is hostile. You're a witness. You have to say the truth. This is exactly, by the way, what Jesus prophesied would happen back in John 15, 26. Jesus told him this was coming. He said, when the helper comes, 
whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you will also bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. So he's going to bear witness to me, then he'll go to you, and then you'll bear witness to him. It's a beautiful little chain there. And where is this supposed to happen? Well, here's the outline of the book of Acts. Theme verse, outline of the book, all in one. It's Acts 1.8. In Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And, and that's exactly what happened, by the way. It's kind of a, a prophecy as well. There's number three. It's a prophecy too. The gospel started among the Jews in Jerusalem. Peter led the charge to those who knew the law, knew the prophets, those who missed the Messiah, and he preached. So really, Acts 1 through 7 is basically, hey, Jews, don't miss your Messiah. Then Judea Samaria are listed to include the outlying areas of Israel, uniting what would have been the old uh, northern and southern kingdoms together under the Davidic monarchy. The, the Samaritans who were cast off and considered impure would be brought into the church. We know that would come through the witness of Philip. And then in Acts 13, the apostle Paul would be sent on one of three missionary journeys recorded in Acts, hitting modern-day Turkey and Greece and eventually Rome, taking the gospel across the entire known world. This is the last thing Jesus said. These are his words. Be filled with the Spirit, bear witness to me, and cover the earth with my name. Be filled with the Spirit, bear witness to me, cover the earth with my name. If a church doesn't know what they're supposed to be doing, man, I might start right there. If I ever walked into a church and they said, pastor, help us, we don't know what we're doing. In fact, let me tell you something. I'm the cheapest consultant you can ever find. Anybody listening online? Which camera's on? That one right there? If you're online and you're looking for a church consultant, don't spend big bucks. Call Jared Cress. Let me help you. Let me tell you what to do, all right? I know exactly what to do. Here it is. I'm your diagnostic. Number one, are you a church conducive to a movement of the Spirit of God? That's number one. Are we a church conducive to a movement of the Spirit of God? If not, don't worry about anything else. You're worrying about dumb things if you didn't start there. Start there. Preach the gospel, worship in spirit and truth. Display the fruits of the Spirit in your membership. If you don't have that, don't pass go, don't collect 200. That's number one. You've got to start there. Is the Spirit of God actually showing up among us? That's number one. Number two, are you bearing witness to Jesus in this world? Are you telling people about Jesus? Are you representing the interest of Jesus in this world? Do people know and experience the gospel through you? Are you a witness in any sense of the word? Are you on the witness stand in any way in your life? Or is your entire faith personalized? Is it internalized? Is this a Christian country club? Or are we affecting things out there? Third question. Do you have some sort of plan to engage Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth? Doesn't have to be a perfect plan, but do you have a plan? What's your plan for local ministry? Your city where you live? Here's a good question. If your church pulled out of your city, would you be missed at all? Would anybody know you were gone? If just a big old hand reached down and ripped this building off and took it to heaven and you were just gone, would anybody say, man, Kirby Wood used to be there. They were an awesome church. They did lots of great things. Or would nobody know? By the way, I think they'd know we were gone. Do you have a plan for ministry in America's cities? Rural, urban, 
When you see the world in decay, when you watch our cities across the United States in decay, is there something that triggers that says, you know what, we could do something about that. We, we ought to have some, some kind of plan. Do you have a plan for church planting? Do you have a plan for ministry? When a hurricane destroys the Gulf Coast, do, you, do we have anything to do about that? Do we have some kind of plan? And lastly, do the vast numbers of unreached, unengaged people stir your soul in any way to pray, send, and go to all the earth for Jesus' sake? Do you have some kind of plan for what to do about the massive, unreached, unengaged people groups all across the earth? You just start there. Start there. That's an Acts 1-8 church. Spirit power, bold witness on mission. Spirit power, bold witness on mission. That's the plan. That's what Jesus said right before he left. So we've seen from Jesus a proper perspective, a promise of power, a tactic to testify, and lastly, number four, a reassurance of return, a reassurance of return. Read verses 9 through 11 with me for the conclusion of this passage. See, I told you I'd move quick. Verse 9 said, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. So in theology, we call this the ascension of Christ. Only the gospel of Luke and Acts gives this direct historical account, though it's clearly mentioned in lots of other places theologically, typically mentioned in that this is the moment where Jesus ascended to sit down at the right hand of the Father. So if you read that in the Bible, this is that moment where that happens. And and again, this is where Jesus is right now. Where is Jesus? He's still there, same spot, in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, waiting for his return. Now, interestingly enough, to the apostles on the ground, this return was maximized to them. As they're watching him ascend, just kind of watching him. Maybe their mouth was hanging open. I don't know. They're just watching him go into heaven. And then two white men have to say, two white men, two men in white robes. I don't know what color they were. They might have been. Probably not. Um, two men in white robes say, hey, look over here. And what do they say to him? Don't worry. The same way that you saw him go is the same way he's going to come back. Now, some people believe that means he's simply going to return on the clouds in the air, that they're just telling you about the way he's going to return. Uh, he left via a cloud and through the air. He'll, he'll come back through a cloud and through the air. Some believe he's saying that he will return and his feet will touch down right on that exact same square foot spot on the Mount of Olives. And some believe when he returns, he's making a beeline for the Temple Mount. Now, what you need to hang your hat on is a few things. Number one, we know Jesus' return will be visible. Every eye will see him. It will not be a secret return. That's number one. Number two, it will be bodily and it will be physical, not a spiritual return. It will be on the clouds in the sky. So he's not coming from the earth. He's not coming from the sea. He's coming from the heavens. It will be show-stopping. Likely the most amazing event ever to occur up till this moment in history. To the believer, it will be glorious. To the unbeliever, it will be terrifying. Whenever his feet hit that first location on the earth, we need to have a reassurance in our heart that he is returning. You need that. You need a reassurance in your heart that he is returning. 
You might be premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, post-trib, mid-trib, pre-trib, dispensational, and I'll hug your neck either way, as long as you'll hug mine either way. But you need reassurance either way that the Lord is coming back. We all need that reassurance in our life. You need to be certain that it is true and that when things get tough in this world, and I think there's a good chance they're going to get tougher rather than easier, you need the confidence of his return. The apostles needed it 2,000 years ago, and you need it right now. So if we step back from these words, Jesus, the last words, the last moments of focus, we see a proper perspective is given. He says, don't worry about the times. Worry about the task. We see a promise of the Holy Spirit's power to come. We see a battle plan, a tactic to testify, to bear witness. And we see a reassurance that just like he said in the Great Commission, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And then in Acts, he says, and I will come back. In the same way I left, I'm coming back. Jesus' final words were a battle plan filled with promise. And so, how should these last words affect you? How should these last words affect our church? How can Kirby Woods be an Acts 1-8 church? How can you be a witness of Christ, empowered by the Spirit? That's our challenge today, to think about those things. Would you pray with me?